0: Um, what God's doing in other people's lives and allow other voices to step in and speak. And so I just, you know, before I invite our next speaker up this morning, I want to thank Bruce and Dan and Trevor, like, for just killing it the last few weeks. Like, just so appreciate um, the words that you guys have thrown into the church. And um, this morning, we have an opportunity to hear from one last person as they teach from Psalm 118 this morning. And so if you guys would give it up for Mr. Hudson Brandle... Don't hold a shark's gear against him this morning. You know, have grace upon grace upon grace. We so. need it. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> oh! fan. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Hudson. A- Thanks. Now I'm out of breath already. but Well, good morning, Anthem. Thank you, everyone, for being willing to have me. I was up here about three years ago. And apparently didn't do so poorly that I could never come back. So that's exciting to learn. Thank you. My computer is longing for death. So I've got to kill some time while my sermon loads. What do we kill time with here usually? Weather? Huh? Everyone like the weather? But nice? Fantastic. Um, One thing I'll let you know before I get started is I really enjoy and lean into crowd participation. I don't ask rhetorical questions. Those of you that like to shout in church, today's your opportunity. If I ask questions, shout out, give your response. I love it, I feed on it, it's gonna help me get going. Um, I also will be reading out of the NIV today. I'm stubborn, I don't like to change. So those of you that are used to the ESV can be taking a little bit of a shift this morning. So Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. When hard pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord I cut them down. I was pushed and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So when I got asked to speak this morning, I was given a, a chunk of psalms to go through. If you've been here the last few weeks, we, you know we've been talking about how the book of psalms is broken up into these smaller sections. And I was given this big chunk, 107 to 150, which is great because almost all of those are largely going to be characterized as having like these consistent themes of hope and praise. They're very optimistic and cheerful. Those of you that know me know this is probably the last chunk of, sec- of scripture that really fits into how my personality generally operates. The day I was called and asked to give, uh, to, to preach, I had actually spent some time over at my parents' house and was going through some old photos that they had taken, and I pulled out that morning a bunch of photos um, of me as a kid because I didn't have any, and I gave a couple of them back there, so if you want to put up the, the photos, you can get an idea of what it normally looks like when you've interacted with me my whole life. Are they not there? That's not what I look like. Uh. Do we not have them? Doesn't look like it. They're lost. I scowl a lot. That's what it looks like. My, my default facial expression looks kind of bored and disinterested. I don't choose that, uh, it's just how I look. Um, and generally I'm pretty pessimistic, that's just kind of my default setting. Um, optimism doesn't come easy to me. Um, even when I'm looking forward to something, my face usually doesn't tell it. So this is, this is not the passage I would have expected to be in. Now one thing that I do really love are puzzles. Um, do we have photos of my puzzles? Those gone too? Sweet. All right. Well, let me just paint a picture here. So I had pictures up of my old office where I used to work, and uh, it had three walls just coated almost floor to ceiling with puzzles I'd put together, glued together, and hung up as decorations. For as long as I can remember, that's just been something I've loved working on. Um, Something I've actually been really good at for whatever reason. Some of my youngest memories are sitting at my grandparents' house, and when the adults got stuck, they'd ask me to come find the piece they were looking for. My mind just operates that way, and it clicks together. The reason that's relevant is because the passage we're going to be working through is kind of a puzzle. So, um, I don't think I've ever heard us talk about this from the pulpit here at Anthem before, so this might be new to a lot of you. Who knows what a chiasm is? Oh, (laughs) okay, that is not very many, so we're going to be talking about that. So I'll give you a brief overview of it. So what a chiasm is, it's a literary structure that's designed to help readers find some sort of valuable treasure inside their reading. Um, It's popularly used throughout your entire Bible. Um, The authors would often find that they would take this different approach to teaching than we do in our modern Western society, whereas for us, it's a lot of telling you what it is and showing you exactly where to read it. We, we give delivery, that's how we learn. And they thought the best way was by discovery. So they'd find it in there and as you would reread passages over and over and over, you would be drawn towards the central focus as you kind of put this mental puzzle together. Um, I know explaining that verbally doesn't work super well, so we're going to have a chance to practice it um, and then we'll go through the actual passage and implement it there as well. But to take... Um, just a brief example, it works a handful of ways. You'll have things that at the beginning and the end of a passage and then further in, further in, and you land at a central point. It can also operate, you know, A, B, C, and then towards a D at the end or back the other way. What we're looking at today is one that's going to fold up in the middle, okay? And I wrote my own poem to try and help us get started with a really dunce example before we got to the professionals. I think I'd like pizza for lunch, and an ice-cold Coca-Cola too. I eat lunch alone most days, but today I think I'd like to be joined by a few. I'd like to see the Raiders win the Super Bowl. Oh, how me and my friends in the nation would cheer, and I'd be quite content with a lunch of vegetables and warm beer. All right, so that's what we've got. This is a chiasm, so this one's gonna operate the exact same way as the psalm we're going through. We've got uh, something at the front and at the end, that are both going to have a similar theme to try and help us recognize that pattern. So the first and the last line, as you look up there, what do we have in conjunction? We have a meal, right? I'm talking about food. First and last. We've got a consistent theme. And then in the second and fourth line, we're talking about community. How I normally eat alone would like to be joined by a few, and this one's about cheering in the community. And then the central point is, come on, we shall say it. We want the Raiders to win the Super Bowl, right? 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 I get lunch every day. Like I ne- Do I look like I skip meals? 36 years I've been waiting for a Raiders Super Bowl. It's been elusive. Of course, that's the primary thing in there that's important to me. That's where I want your attention drawn. So that's how a chiasm works. Does that make sense? Are we following? Yes? We got it. All right, let's apply it to this psalm. Don't click to the next slide, because I want to work through it together before it's all up there as a cheat sheet, okay? So pull up your, if those of you that have your Bible with you, open up to Psalm 118. What do you think would be your first hint that we've got a chiasm here that we're going to be working through? I'll give you a minute, deliberate. They're exactly the same, right? That's as good of a starting point for a hint that there's one there that you're going to find. First and last verse give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. So we've got it exactly the same. Then we've got a couple other themes here, and they're going to start to close in on themselves. So we're going to be looking here at verse 5. And when hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord, he brought me into a spacious place. So what we have here is an author that's in a situation of tension, hard-pressed. Um, thinking about it, most of these psalms are written by like, I think we default to thinking David, maybe enclosed. Battle is a very consistent theme that we'll see throughout the Psalms, closed in by their enemies. They're stuck in a tight and confined space. It looks like the end of the road. And then if we go to the very other end of our, our Psalm at the back end, in verse 27, it says, The Lord is God, and He has made the light shine on us. Light shines where? Where do we see light shining? open spaces, right? Not if you're closed in in your city gates or stuck in some alleyway as the city is under siege. So we've got these, the light shining on it. Thematically, it's also opposite. When you're closed in, you're under pressure, okay? When the light shines on you, specifically it's credited to the Lord making his light shine on you. That should take us all the way back to our Torah, right? It's a blessing that they would give. May the Lord make his light shine upon you. So we have it showing opposites as it's showing a a completion of the theme on the other end. I hope I'm making sense. Is this landing? Yeah, perfect. So we're going to go on then to our next chunk, and that's going to be verses 10 and 12, where we're going to see the pattern folding in again. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They swarmed around like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. Verse 26. I'm going to outsource this again. What do we see? Let's try and practice. What do we see that's that's repeating and bringing us back to the theme and drawing it back to those other three verses? No volunteers? Name of the Lord, it comes up in all three of those verses. And here it is again, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So we've got that theme repeating there again. The name of the Lord coming up over and over again. And then one more chunk we're going to have here. Uh, Verses 14 through 16. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done many things. So what we're going to see through those verses um, is a couple of different things that are going to be repeated on later, which is the, talking about a place for the righteous. And then also when it talks about the Lord's right hand, this is a show of the Lord's strength. Whenever you see that there, the right hand. It's favor or it's strength. That's something that's going to symbolize throughout Scripture. And this is going to pair up for us with verse 26. Nope, wrong passage. 20 through 22. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. We've got righteous and a place that's set aside for them to enter again. I will give you thanks for you answered me, and you have become my salvation. And the stone... the. Builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We probably are more familiar with that line, right? We hear it in the Gospels a lot. Jesus refers that to himself. And a cornerstone is a source of strength and a building. It's this spot that holds it all together. It's where the strength comes from. We've got a parallel to his right hand in doing those mighty things. So we've closed it all up in ourselves. So what's left in the middle? We've got verses 17. And 18 is where I'm going to look at and see that we're, we have something here in the middle for us. And if you want to go ahead and, and put the diagram up so you guys can take a look visually at how this works. So it folds in on itself. It draws our attention to the middle. Did that track? Okay. Yeah. Did it actually track? I heard like three yeses. I want to make sure we've got this. My sermon doesn't go very far without it. Okay. So we've got 17 and 18 is the center of our chiasm. Now, as we read through this whole passage, it seems really cheerful, really joyful. Um, lots of praise, lots of great things happening for the author. That's how it reads all the way through. And what's at the middle? Does it give you that same feeling? Let's let's reread them. I will not die, but live and proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but He has not given me over to death. That's our middle. Does that ring nearly as optimistic as the rest of the passage to you guys? No. It can be really hard to hear. Um, So before we go too much further into these verses, it's where we're going to settle in. I'm going to spend most of the rest of our time today. But there's a word in here we have to grapple with. Um, My Bible uses the word chastened in verse 18. If you have different translations, you're probably seeing something different. What else do you guys have there? Discipline. Does anyone have punish? Yeah. So we could see all three of those. Depending on what translation you're reading from, all of those work. The Hebrew there, word there is Yasar, which is actually pretty easy to remember in this situation because it sounds like yes sir. That seems like it, it really fits with those three interpretations, right? Um, pretty thematically appropriate. That word can really be used to mean any of those kind of interchangeably. and in our Hebrew, words mean a lot of different words we might use in English. And the interpreter is going to kind of decide, you know, what they think it's trying to get at there. Um, if you're wondering why it matters and asking, don't all three of those words mean the same thing? In our culture, yeah, they, they kind of do. We, we use them as complete synonyms to each other. Um, but it wasn't written in our culture, and it wouldn't have been anything close to the same thing um, to the authors. Punishment being equal to discipline is, is probably the same thing in the mind of the person that translated the scripture that you're reading. Um, and the Let's see here. So the first thing we need to establish is that regardless of which of these words that you might find is the right one to use, and whichever one you land on and you think makes more sense if you dig into it, That's fine by me, but I need it to be understood that none of them mean abuse. Depending on what your life has looked like, your background, your upbringing, and how you've walked out, whether it's career experiences or school or just in your home, either as a child or as an adult, we have all seen punishment or discipline used terribly, and it's done terrible things in our lives. Um, Maybe not for all of us, but certainly for some of us. I want it to be very clear that I am not telling you and I don't want you to come away with this thinking that we need to bring praise to an abusive God. We don't serve an abusive God. So before we break down the verses and discuss them further, we're going to talk about how we could differ what we would do with that passage depending on which of those three different options we land on, whether it's chastise, or discipline, or punish. Um, So before we get into that, we have to remember, this is where we have centered in the middle, but we have bookends again. Remember bookends at the beginning and the ending of this. The passage we're reading about, it does not exist separate from those, but within those. So before we have the hard conversations, let's remember what's on the outside. Can we read verse 1 together? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever, okay? That is true no matter what we do with our our verses here that we're focusing on in the center. Let's talk about the word good. That's another word that we don't really use biblically in our society, right? When I say the word good, if I say something's good, do you think I'm doing outstanding? Do you think I have high praise of it? Good is like middle shelf great. My Raiders were good last year, and I'm still writing poems about wanting them in the Super Bowl, right? Good is nothing special. Good is going home in the first round. Good, quite simply, isn't good enough to capture the meaning that's intended when, when it's being portrayed and established as a characteristic of God in our scripture. Good means pleasant and morally good. The idea of good that you'll see in the Bible, it more closely is related to what we might say is perfect in our society, that it is just, well, it's not bad, okay? So I want you to keep that in mind. So good is not abusive. God is not abusive. God is good. Let's talk about healthy punishment. So, what is punishment? Punishment is when one has to bear the consequences for a harmful action they've taken it. In a legal system, punishments are enforced as needed, but not beyond, at least if it's ethical. Imagine a society without punishment, because we hear that and it could ring as really ugly. Would you want to live in a society without it? How about no enforcement that we need to drive sober? No penalty for robbery or assault or murder. Is this a society anyone wants to live in? No. Not rhetorical. <laughs> no, I, I hope it's no. I'm, I, I know that's no for me, um, but punishment, it is, it is necessary. And again, punishment generally, if we're looking at it being used ethically, it's earned. It's not something that someone just throws on you because they had a bad day. It's something that's a consequence of your own actions, I think it's safe to say that punishment, when correctly used, is good, just like God, whose love endures forever. So let's talk about chastisement versus discipline. Um, We don't use chastisement much, do we? Has anyone ever used it while not reading scripture? No? I didn't think so. So let's talk about the difference between the two. And uh, it's great. I found out this morning about uh, Kyle and Stephanie going to their fancy horse horse ranch in Wyoming. And that's actually great for the next example because this was something Kyle gave me when we met in our sermon club this week. Um, And it's a great way to talk about the difference between the two. Um, And you can really do this with a lot of different animals. But I'm going to go with the horses just on, on Kyle's account. Anyone here ever worked with horses, raised horses? You have, okay. When you just have a new horse, before you can really use it for anything, what's the term that's commonly used? What do you have to do to it first? You have to break it, yeah, thank you. Break the horse in. And there's a couple of different ways that you can do that. And the discipline versus chastisement comes in. I've never worked with horses, um, but I've had some people close to me that have. I'm a really soft animal lover, so the idea of breaking it in, I hear breaking an animal, and it makes my skin crawl. And, and I understand that that's not to a horse lover what it means. They love those animals more than I do. They're not trying to crush it. But um, when you're trying to train a horse, and you've got the what's, the, what's the little rope thing in the mouth? The bridle, thank you. When you're holding the bridle, and you're pulling it and you're pulling it and the horse is going to fight you and you have to pull until it stops fighting you, right? And at some point, if it stops fighting and you still pull, that's more of an idea of chastisement. We know you get it, but we don't want you to forget it, so we're going to give you a little bit more, okay? Or we're correcting you. It's the active fight. I think you're still fighting in spirit, so we're pulling you forward. Discipline, and Kyle talked about this, is instead of um, breaking it, is... The moment it stops pulling, you also let up on the reins. Isn't it reins? I think I got given the wrong word. I don't know. I'm not a horse person. Um, And you let it go. There's plenty of examples like this with a dog, too. I've raised plenty of dogs. Um, If you're trying to housebreak it, there is a big difference between you reward it when it went outside and it made its mess there as opposed to giving it a swat or rubbing its nose when it does it inside. One of those is chastisement. One of those is discipline. Discipline is the ongoing of training of how to do things the right way. Chastisement is going to be the pointing out and kind of redirecting from doing it the wrong way. So those sound very similar, but they're very different when it comes to how they're enacted. And I'm going to have to point out the goodness in both. Because we need them both and neither of those are abusive and when God is complicit in any of these actions they are done in love so which is the right way as I said before I think I'm good with all three and um, and I'm going to argue all three really could be right it could just be intentionally leading you to take it whatever way feels right to you bear with me because I'm going to kind of work out my own theory here Psalms 118, we don't know who the author is. Now, it's far from the only psalm that's like that, but the majority of them, we do know who they are. Um, They're passed down by tradition, and usually it's going to be part of the Scripture heading in there that tells you who the author is. From Adam to Moses to David or various worship leaders, you're going to see them all in there. Um, Moses, who is historically cited as the author of Torah, gives us our first five books, the Bible, He lived through an era largely defined by discipline. They are being handed the law. They are actively just learning what it is. They don't have a template. They're being disciplined and shown what to do is good. And then we move forward, because a good and loving God teaches his people. In the time of the judges, which Saul and David come right out of and signal the end of, the law was established at this point. The people of Israel have a very complicated relationship with it. There's frequent correction or chastising, Israel had to move forward because a good and loving God corrects his people. And then after that, in the era of the kings and most of our prophets, we see that punishments on the horizon. The discipline has failed, the chastisement has failed, the people haven't learned their lesson. Instead of having kings and citizens that are reflecting God to the nations, they have a king that's offering their child as a human sacrifice to foreign gods. It's as far opposite as it can get. Child sacrifice, worthy of punishment, show of hands. Yeah? Okay. I believe that when we don't know the author, there's a really good chance that it's written by people in exile after this period of time, and that's why we don't have it established in tradition. Um, God says, God sees that bearing the consequences for the evil is a tool that the people need to learn. And here's the thing that I think gets missed a lot Is that it does work. When Jesus arrives on the scene, does he arrive to a society that's no longer invested in keeping or following the laws? No, not at all. It's the opposite, right? We have leaders that are bearing on and adding so much tradition and weight on top of law. There's law, and then there's ritual, and then there's a thing that the Pharisees do in addition to the ritual, and people are crushed under the burden of everything they have to do. They care so much about the law. Jesus is chastising in the other direction. Simmer down, y'all. And uh, so it works. And so what we see as we go through our Old Testament, we see all of these three actually being used by God and it leading to a path of success where people are invested and following the commands that God has given them. I know that may sound like a long rant and semantics to some extent. I guess it is. Um... But the point is simply this. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. You can use any of them that you want, and it doesn't really matter which word you want to land on when you read it. It's really intended to imply uh, that it works just the same. The challenge here is accepting that God is good and loving while disciplining, while chastising, even while punishing. I don't know how you feel about all of those words describing interactions with God, but I know I don't default to finding those real comforting I believe that's why we find this at the very center of our chiasm, because it's so hard to grasp. It needs the extra attention. It needs to be wrestled with, because it sits at the center of and not outside of the boundaries of our God who is good, whose love endures forever, and above all, the command here is to give thanks. That's about all we're actually told to do in this entire passage. I mean, but giving thanks in the midst of punishment It does not come nearly as intuitively as does much of the standard praise songs we hear in the other 27 verses of this psalm. I know it certainly doesn't for me. Um, If anyone in here has read Timothy Keller's book on prayer, um, it's got a creative title, Prayer. It takes about 300 pages to break down his theory that the purpose of prayer is that it should always culminate in gratitude to our God. When asking for deliverance, or healing, or while making a confession, or whatever you're walking through, all roads lead to praise and thanks. There's no time in this sermon to dive all the way into that concept. There's 300 pages out there if you want to read about it, but I think it's brilliant. Um, And it's a concept that I see backed up here in this passage. The goodness of God is not given in the way we might expect it in this psalm, but it's stated over and over and over again. This does not tell us about what possessions he's giving us. We allude to victory. We don't know over what. We don't know if prosperity is going to follow that victory or if there's a good crop or anything. We as humans aren't even really active in this psalm. The only time a human is referenced as doing anything whatsoever, it is always followed up by doing it in the name of the Lord. He's doing everything here, and when we're acting, it's an act of worship. What we do know is that God is good and He disciplines us. The goodness is found in finding our identity as children of God, choosing dependence on Him instead of ourselves, our circumstances, or our human leaders. Discipline is given as an act of love. That doesn't mean it feels good, but it does mean God is leading us to the place that is best for us. I'm not gonna make any attempts to flip this into a prosperity gospel message. I'm not here to convince anyone that your circumstances are ideal, if you just trust God. Sometimes life sucks. It's plain and simple. It does. And I'm here to tell you that God is good and his love endures forever. And whatever you're going through right now, he's worthy of your thanks. How are we doing on time? I got a few minutes. All right. So I'm going to flip to a quick example of this. And I hope I don't rush enough that it doesn't make sense. But I'm going to go to Genesis 35. Um, For kind of an example of this in action, if anyone wants to turn there with me, you can, but I'm going to read a few verses. Some background for the story we're about to read, and it can be easy to forget, because there's um, something, sometimes in Genesis we find events happen twice, and both times we act normal like it's the first time. This is one of these. Back in Genesis 32, before we get here, Jacob has already had his name changed to Israel by God. Now, I'm going to pick up and start reading here at verse 9. And between chapter 32, when God changes Jacob's name to Israel, and 35.9, we have the same character referenced 22 times in Scripture. 19 times he's called Jacob. Three times he's actually called Israel. Verse 9. After Jacob returned from Padam Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with them. And then what's the next word there? Who? Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God has talked with him Bethel. We're not taking the hint here for Jacob, are we? This is twice now. What's your name? Israel. And the idea when you get this new name, it's not just, I mean, how many of you in this room know me as something other than Hudson? Hudson right? A good number of you. That's not my name. It's the name I chose to go by, and it's kind of an identity shift, and that's what it means in scripture when there's a change of name. Jacob meant deceiver, and God's like, no, I have a different plan in mind for you, and after verse, or chapter 32, and he does it, Jacob just kind of keeps on going deceiving. He likes being Jacob. He likes being the deceiver. He's not interested in this new Israel, and then he continues to do it again. Jacob deceives because he wants to control everything. Let's read on, verse 16. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel gave, began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, she was dying. She named her son Ben-Anoi, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. From this point on, throughout the rest of Genesis, Instead of we getting uh, his name being referenced as Jacob at about a six-to-one ratio versus Israel, it's about 50-50. We're seeing Jacob move more towards being Israel and accepting that identity change and not needing to control. This death of Rachel is really important for that. And I know it can be icky to read that and say, God killed Rachel to make a point. Jacob doesn't believe that's true. Between chapters 32 and 35, Jacob still being the deceiver, he flees Laban, and can anyone remember a specific event along the road that happens pertaining to some idols? Which wife? Rachel, right? Jacob says when Laban shows up looking for his house gods, Jacob says, no one in my camp stole it, and if someone did, that person will die. Three chapters later, she dies. And if you dig into the Hebrew, you'll see it works either way. That, uh, and it, I think it means Jacob blames himself. His deceit has caused the death of the wife he loved, which I know that's icky, and I think that's part of the character flaws we see in Jacob. He's got two wives. He only loves one of them. And at that point, we see a couple of things change. One, The name that Rachel tries to give the son, ben means son of my sorrow. She sees this child as a point of grief. And why wouldn't she? She's dying in childbirth. But Jacob sees it differently. Jacob's understanding that there's a shift that needs to happen. And he names him Benjamin. Son of my right hand. We just saw right hand a lot in Psalms too, right? Son of my strength. Son of my favor. And at this point, Jacob is choosing to lean into the identity God has for him and find praise in it instead of the sorrow that Rachel tried to hand him. And this is really. This is kind of why I'm preaching today. Chris didn't have anyone to preach uh, earlier this week, and he called me on Monday and asked if I'd be willing to speak. Angela let him know I'd be available, because I lost my job a few weeks ago. Um, it's been a rough couple of years for me, I know I'm not alone in that. But I'm unemployed right now, I got fired, that's a first for me, never happened in my life, real humbling experience. Um, right around the same time it was happening, I found out my house needs somewhere between 15 and 30 grand in repairs, so the timing there is not great for financial strain. Um, I'm single, 36 years old. And earlier this year, I had to put down a dog I'd had my entire adult life, and I'm really not quite over that yet either. It has been a tough year. Today is the one-year anniversary for when I officiated my first funeral for my, uh, my best friend through my high school and college years, or at least one of my two best friends. Things have been tough. And yet, through all of this, I've never been more at peace than I have over the last several years, because as these burdens have been added to my life, And my time is completely free and wiped out while I'm out of work. Nothing is distracting me from the goodness of God. I don't set an alarm. I wake up every morning and I have a chance to pray and give praise to God before I leave bed every day, never in a rush. I am aware of my dependence and I'm cognizant that I am loved. Nothing's distracting me from my ability to give thanks to the Lord for that all enduring love. If we want to have the worship team, come on back up. So as I wrap up here, I just wanna invite everyone to take a few minutes to ponder what that means to you. Life could be great right now, it could be challenging, it could be gruesome, and through that we're called to thank God in recognition of his goodness, not in the goodness of our circumstances. Through the good and the bad, can we find the space to thank him? I'm gonna pray for us real quick, and then I'm going to give us some time just with some silence. To reflect on what this message is calling us to, to find a heart of worship regardless of our circumstances and for recognition of God's unrelenting goodness. When the silence feels sufficiently awkward, we'll have our band go ahead and give us all a chance to put that into action, and I would encourage you all to worship to your absolute fullest, to express your gratitude to God, to thank Him for His goodness. There's some places up front. We've got some nice carpets if you want to kneel and come up and express yourself that way if you feel called to do so. There's plenty of open spaces in the aisles and around. You want to dance? Dance. Let it out. And there's pastors aplenty if you need to talk. Let's wrap this up. Lord, I thank you for who you are and for your love for us. There is a lot of sorrow, there is a lot of struggle, there is a lot of hurt at various places in this room, I am sure, it is the human condition. And I just ask that you would prepare our hearts, that we would open them and give you space to move within us, to see how good you are and to find our ways to gratitude, whether times are great or times are bad to know that you are good, that you are worth all of our praise, and that praise for you is where our identity lies, that we will be loved in all circumstances, that we will find a way to anchor ourselves in you. I ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.